Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta and the volume editors of each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Kate Merriweather, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we're talking about a 35-year-old woman with an abnormal pap smear. So we'll be reviewing some gynecologic cytology considerations and what you do to work up women who have abnormal screening for cervical cancer. You can tweet at me at Kate Merriweather1, K-A-T-E-M-E-R-I-W-E-T-H-E-R-1. For those of you following along in the book, we're on page 276, case number 39. It was written by Dr. Sarah Petruska at the University of Louisville. Let's go to our patient. So she's a 35-year-old G2P2 woman who presents regarding her recent abnormal pap smear. Two weeks ago, she was seen for her annual gynecologic examination and is without complaints. Her last pap was normal three years ago. She has no abnormal bleeding, discharge, or pelvic pain, and her menstrual cycles are regular on oral contraceptive pills. She's considering another pregnancy in one to two years. You tell her that her pap demonstrates low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion, or LSIL, L-S-I-L. So who needs pap nicolau or pap smear screening? What do the ages of the patient tell us about who needs what? So if you're under the age of 21, you don't need pap screening, regardless of how early you started having sexual intercourse. Now, if you're age 21 to 29, you do need screening with a pap smear every three years. That's every three years. And the HPV, or the human papillomavirus testing, should not be used for screening, but more used as a reflex test if you have atypical cells, or something we call an ASCUS, A-S-C-U-S, pap. Age 30 to 64, that changes a little bit. Those women get a pap with HPV co-testing every five years, and that's the preferred thing to do. If you only have access to a pap smear, you're going to do cervical cytology, a pap, every three years. That's acceptable. You stop doing paps after the age of 65 and over if there's no history of cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, CIN 2 to 3, in the past 20 years, and there's been three consecutive negative paps or two consecutive negative HPV tests in the past 10 years. And the most recent has to be within five years. Now, let's say the woman's had a hysterectomy. What do you do then? If the cervix has been removed at the same time of the hysterectomy, and it's now what we call a supracervical hysterectomy where the cervix is left in place, and the patient has no history of CIN2 or worse in the past 20 years, pap screening is not indicated for them. If you've got a prior history of CIN 2 to 3, adenocarcinoma in situ or cervical cancer in your past, however, that woman would need to continue screening for 20 years after the last positive test for these conditions, even if that extends beyond the age of 65. Okay, so what are the risk factors for having an abnormal pap smear like our patient here? Patients are at increased risk of abnormal pap smears and cervical dysplasia if they have tobacco use, early what we call coitarchy or age at the first uh, sexual intercourse encounter, prior abnormal pap smears, multiple sexual partners or sexual partners who've had multiple past partners, immunosuppression, 
lower socioeconomic status, oral contraceptive use, poor nutrition, history of human papillomavirus, HPV, or other sexually transmitted infections, and lack of regular access to screening. So let's go back to our patient. The patient has a history that you take, and she reports a history of abnormal pap smear many years ago with normal pap smear since. She denies new sexual partners and is monogamous now with her husband. She is, however, a heavy smoker. So a little clinical pearl about HPV, the human papillomavirus. It's a sexually transmitted infection that the majority of sexually active women will contract at some point in their lives. Most get it in the first few years after cordiarchy or when they have their first sexual encounter. Most commonly, the immune system successfully clears the virus, but patients may continue to carry the virus at undetectably low levels. Patients also can reactivate their HPV viral infection after several normal pap smears or develop cervical dysplasia without a new infection. So an abnormal pap is not an indication of a new exposure or a new infection with HPV. High-risk HPV types, because there's different viral types, are type 16, 18, 31, 35, and 45. Those types have oncogenes E6 and E7, which allow the high-risk types of HPV to transform host cells. And you can test for these oncogenes in certain clinical situations if needed. Low-risk HPV types can cause genital condyloma, or what we commonly call warts, but they can't transform cells, and therefore they don't lead to cervical cancer. They don't have the oncogenic genes. So how do we interpret pap smears? How did we know that this woman had a, quote, abnormal pap smear? Let's talk about the pap smear result and then go and say, what does the cytologist see? What does that mean? And what are the next options as a next step? So if you've got a pap smear result that shows normal cytology and HPV or human papillomavirus negative, what does the cytologist see? He or she sees normal cells and a negative test for HPV. It means there's no evidence of dysplasia or an HPV infection. And the next step is a repeat pap at the next recommended interval, usually three to five years, depending on whether or not there was HPV testing, right? If you have normal cytology, but the HPV is positive, that means the cytologist saw normal cells, but a positive test for HPV. The HPV virus is present, but there's no evidence that it's changed the host cells at this point. There's no dysplasia. So the indicated uh, result is you do a repeat PAP with HPV test in one year. Again, that's one year. So now it's not the three to five year interval from before. What if the PAP smear result is atypical squamous cells of uncertain significance, what we abbreviate ASCUS? The cytologist will see some changes suggestive of atypia, larger and darker nuclear, higher nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio, but there's no definitive evidence of dysplasia. The cells look slightly abnormal, but the cytopathologist is unable to say really why they're abnormal. Possible causes can be dysplasia, which is what we're worried about, cervicitis or inflammation, vaginitis or vaginal inflammation, or atrophy. So the genitourinary syndrome of menopause, where the cells change due to lack of hormones. What are the next steps? For women over 25 that have ASCUS, you test for HPV. If it's negative, then dysplasia is not present. And if it's positive, colposcopy is indicated. We're going to talk about more about colposcopy in a little bit. For the patients that are under the age of 25 that have ASCUS, you've got to repeat the PAP in one year. So what if you have ACHH or atypical squamous cells that are high grade? That's equivocal features suggestive of, but not sufficient to diagnose HCIL. 
Those are markedly abnormal cells, but the outcomes for those patients are closer to those patients that have HCIL than those that have LCIL. We'll talk about HCIL and LCIL in a minute. In these ASK-H patients, colposcopy is indicated even if the HPV test happened to be negative. So if you've got a low-grade squamous intraepithelial neoplasia, or what we call LCIL, the pathologist sees mild atypia definitely, and the patient is at risk for dysplasia, but not at the severity that they would if they had HCIL, as we talk about in a minute. Colposcopy, again, is indicated even if the HPV test is negative. And if they have high-grade squamous intraepithelial neoplasia, or HCIL, that shows marked atypical features definitely seen by the pathologist. What does that mean? The patient has a higher chance of severe dysplasia than if her pap was LCIL, but her diagnosis or whether or not she has cancer or malignancy is still uncertain. Colposcopy, again, as you would expect, is indicated even if the HPV test is negative. So what are the levels that definitely trigger colposcopy, ASCH, LCIL, or HCIL? So how do providers manage normal pap smears? Let's bring it all together. Guidelines for management are released by the American Society for Cytopathologists and Colposcopists, the ASCCP. Cervical cancer screening guidelines evolve really rapidly, so physicians should refer to the most current set of guidelines. The last set of guidelines as of when this book was written was released in 2013 and is available at www.asccp.org in the clinical practice section or via the ASCCP phone application. There's actually an app for that. In guidelines, management strategies are designated as preferred, acceptable, or unacceptable. We anticipate another revision in 2017, so by the time of this recording, there should be a new one. So let's go back to our patient. We review the patient that colposcopy is indicated for further evaluation of her pap smear. Remember, because she had LCIL, so she needs colposcopy. The patient wonders what she will feel during colposcopy. So how would you describe a colposcopy experience to a patient? For colposcopy, a speculum is placed in the vagina and the cervix is inspected by a colposcope. A colposcope is a microscope with 10 to 40 times magnification to view the cervix, hence colposcope. The colposcope itself does not touch the patient. You apply solutions to the cervix, like acetic acid, vinegar, uh, which may burn or tingle the patient. If a biopsy is needed, most patients feel a poorly localized menstrual-like cramp or no discomfort at all during that biopsy. This is because the cervix has visceral innervation. That's not like somatic innervation like you'd have on your finger or your toe. The distal vagina and vulva has somatic innervation, so they can localize the pain and it's sharp. But if you biopsy the cervix, it's very vague, maybe crampy sensation. Now, how would you prepare yourself, the examiner, to perform a colposcopy? So you're going to do one. What do you do? Prior to the patient being in the room, sit in the examiner's stool with good posture and position and put the binoculars at a place that's easy for viewing. Once the patient is in the room and positioned with her buttocks just past the edge of the table in dorsal lithotomy, the table height should be adjusted, a speculum place, and the cervix brought into view. The coposcope is moved within 15 centimeters of the cervix to bring the cervical epithelium into focus and allow sufficient space for you to put instruments in and out. Some coposcopes focus by adjustment knobs, others do it by you moving the coposcope further away or closer to the patient. So in colposcopy, what is the transformation zone or the TZ and what's its role in looking at the cervix in colposcopy? The TZ is that portion of the cervix where stratified squamous epithelium on the external rounded portion of the cervix called the portio. 
that appears shiny and smooth, it transitions to redder and rougher looking columnar epithelium of the internal cervix. So the transition zone is a transition. The TZ must be fully visualized all the way around 360 degrees and any lesions fully seen in order to have what we call a, quote, adequate colposcopy. So it may require movement of the cervix with cotton swabs so you can see it all the way around. Dysplastic lesions begin within the TZ because any area of metaplasia or transition from one epithelial type to another is higher risk for cancer, more cells turning over, more potential genetic mistakes. So if part of the TZ or the lesion is not seen, unseen lesions or higher grade within a seen lesion can't be excluded. That's why we give colposcopy the label of adequate or inadequate. So how do solutions applied to the cervix highlight lesions or dysplasia on colposcopy? After you observe the cervix for leukoplakia, raised masses, or abnormal vasculature, you can apply a solution to highlight the transition zone and patches of dysplasia or carcinoma. Acetic acid, usually 3%, reacts with the higher protein and the nuclear concentration of metaplastic cells, creating a thin white line at the transition zone. And it will turn dysplastic areas bright white because they have even higher protein and more nuclear concentration. Alternatively, 5% Lugol's iodine solution, which stains glycogen in healthy tissues brown, will cause areas of carcinoma or dysplasia to appeal pale as opposed to brown because those areas have less glycogen than healthy tissues. The more cellular turnover, less glycogen. Note, however, that ectropion, endometrium, and columnar epithelium also appear pale with the application of Lugol solution, so consider the location and the irregularity of the lesions that you're seeing. Now, in the book, we've got some cool figures that I'm going to describe to you over the podcast. It shows a normal coposcopic view of the adult cervix with that typical squamino-columnar junction visible. So you've got the smooth portion of the cervix and all of a sudden it transitions to this beefy red on the internal cervical os. Now, alternatively, you could see dysplasia or acetoite lesions um, that are stained with acetic acid. They light up bright white and are irregular, starting at the TZ and then radiating outward from there. So we show you an acetoite lesion in the figure. So let's go back to our patient. What do we see when we look at her on colposcopy? We explain the colposcopy procedure to us and the patient agrees to proceed. After acetic acid is applied, the colposcopic exam demonstrates two separate areas of acetoite changes at 12 o'clock and 6 o'clock on the portio of the cervix. Remember, the portio is not supposed to have acetoite lesions. No abnormal vascularity is noted, fortunately. So what if no lesions were seen on the colposcopic view of the cervix? What would that mean? In that situation, a discrepancy would exist between the level of changes seen on pap smear that this patient had LSIL and the colposcopic examination. So one has to suspect that there's more dysplastic lesions that we didn't see somehow. In those situations, an endocervical curettage, or what we call an ECC, should be obtained. A small curette is placed within the cervical canal and rotated while applying pressure to the canal walls to remove small strips of tissue. An endocervical brush is then used to collect the specimen and send it for pathology. So we're suspecting, because of this mismatch between the pap and what we're seeing, that we're not seeing something. So we look inside the cervical canal. What descriptors are used to describe colposcopic lesions, and what's the most concerning? So on colposcopy, low-grade lesions, cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, CIN1 typically, have acetoite change with a translucent appearance and have these feathery borders that kind of resemble a coastline. 
Higher grade lesions, which would usually correspond to CIN 2 to 3, are more opaque white with straighter borders, so they don't have that coastline appearance. Vascular punctation or dotted pattern represents capillary loops within subepithelial papillae. Vascular mosaicism, or this sort of tiling pattern, is created by networks of capillaries running parallel to the epithelial surface. Both punctation and mosaicism may appear fine and regular, associated with low-grade changes, or maybe really more coarse and irregular, and those suggest high-grade disease. Extremely irregular vessels, such as comma-shaped segments or corkscrews, are seen with microvasive or invasive carcinoma, and so are the most concerning thing you can see. Some colposcopes have a green filter on the light that can kind of highlight vascular changes, so see if you have that feature on your colposcope. A biopsy should be obtained from any areas that appear normal, particularly if there are vascular changes. Visualizing the lesion does not give the diagnosis, right, but allows you to target where to put the biopsy so that you can get a tissue diagnosis from those locations. So how is a cervical biopsy performed? A biopsy forceps is a long, slender instrument with two small blades forming jaws at a tip. They have a straight or inactive blade that's inserted into the cervical os and held parallel to the axis of the cervix, while the articulating or active blade is pressed against the portion of the cervix over the target lesion. After the handle is squeezed, the forceps are removed and the biopsy specimen, usually this little bit, two to three millimeters in size, is retrieved. The wooden handle of a cotton tip swab is a really nice trick to move the biopsy specimen from the jaws of the forceps to a formalin-filled cup. You can also use a clean, sterile, large-gauge needle if you want. And it's best to retrieve the specimen without contacting the formalin, so it goes right from the jaws, falls into the formalin. You perform biopsies of both lesions and obtain an ECC on this patient, of course, because she had some acetylwhite lesions. She tolerates those procedures well. She then asks you to reach her by cell phone when you receive the results. Little basic science pearl. CIN3 and squamous carcinoma in situ are functionally the same thing. They both indicate full thickness dysplasia without evidence of invasion. Now, what do I mean by invasion? I mean that the basement membrane of the epithelium has not been invaded by whatever the lesion is, or in this case, a cancerous lesion. So what different results might be seen on cervical biopsy? We biopsied this patient, what could we get? A biopsy might show no evidence of malignancy or dysplasia, or could show cervical inflammation, cervicitis, or metaplasia. Remember, there's that zone of metaplasia over the transition zone. A biopsy might also show an HPV effect, such as the presence of coelocytes, without dysplastic changes. Now, if dysplasia is seen, it might be described as CIN1, CIN2-3, CIN3, squamous carcinoma in C2, or what we call CIS, invasive squamous cell carcinoma, so that's where it's invaded the basement membrane, adenocarcinoma in C2, or invasive adenocarcinoma. Extension into endocervical glands is not invasion because it represents lateral spread of the dysplasia into, on the epithelium as it invaginates into gland spaces. However, that founding is associated with recurrence after excision. So extension into endocervical glands is not invasion, but it's a risk factor for recurrence after you've excised it. So what sort of treatments are there available? The cervix can be ablated with cryotherapy or laser or the dysplasia can be excised using a loop excisional electrosurgical procedure, abbreviated LEEP or LEAP. Or it can be excised using a cold knife cone, cold because you're not using electrothermal heat and it's done with a knife, so cold knife cone or CKC. 
Ablation or a leap can be performed in the office or in an operating room based on the available equipment and, of course, the comfort of the patient. Because of the increased sidewall retraction of the vagina and the risk of bleeding with a CKC, this procedure is usually performed in the operating room. So let's go back to some figures that are here in the book that I want to describe to you. It's some histological stuff. Great fun, right? Normal cervical pathology at the squamocolumnar junction on histology usually shows uh, this transition between squamous and columnar epithelium. In this figure, we're demonstrating some CIN1, CIN2, and CIN3 with graded increasing abnormality of the nucleus and structure in the epithelial layers. So as you go from CIN1 to CIN2 to CIN3, there's more abnormality in the structure of the cells and how well the, the layers are layered, so to speak. And what is the, the nucleus looking like in relation to cytoplasm? Usually the nuclei are darker, bigger in relation to the cell, and more abnormal looking in shape. So just keep that in mind if you're ever in looking at histology figures of the cervix. So what types of dysplasia should we be treating? CIN1 is likely to resolve on its own in an average of 18 months, but persistence for 24 months, two years, should be treated by either excision or ablation. For ablation to be acceptable, as it doesn't provide this pathological specimen, something we can look at under a microscope, the colposcopy must have been adequate, the ECC negative, or CIN1 on the ECC, and the patient has to have no history of past dysplasia treatment, like a past colposcope leading to a leap or a cold knife cone. If the colposcopy was inadequate, the ECC showed CIN 2 to 3 or ungraded dysplasia, or if the patient had this prior treatment, the patient requires an excisional procedure, even if it's CIN 1. While CIN 2 may resolve spontaneously in younger women, it really should be treated in women over 25. CIN 3, in contrast, should be treated by ablation or excision for women of any age, with ablation, again, reserved for patients that have that adequate colposcopy with normal cells or CIN 1 on the ECC. Adenocarcinoma in C2, different kind of cancer, should also be treated with an, uh, excision because these tend to be deeper inside the cervical canal and they tend to be more aggressive. If an invasive cervical cancer is noted on colposcopic biopsy, excision with a cold knife cone cystoscopy or proctoscopy should be performed in the operating room to allow for staging and treatment planning. Something interesting about cervical cancer is that you can only stage it with cheap or scopic procedures, so endoscopy into the bladder or the rectum or basic uh, visualization of the cervix with colposcope. That's because most cervical cancer cases occur in resource-lower settings where certain more advanced imaging isn't available. So let's go back to our patient. Your patient's results are showing CIN3 with a negative ECC. After reviewing the options, she requests an office leap. So remember, that's that loop excisional electrosurgical procedure. You perform the leap, and the pathology demonstrates CIN3 with negative endocervical and ectocervical margin. So you've gotten the edges of this lesion. At her two-week follow-up visit, she's healing well. She understands that per current guidelines, she should have a PAP and HPV co-testing in 12 and 24 months to follow up from her dysplasia. So let's do a case summary of this. We had a 35-year-old woman with an abnormal pap smear showing LSIL who came to us for follow-up. She underwent a colposcopy, as indicated, and the findings were consistent with an adequate colposcopy and acetoid changes on acetic staining, so a biopsy was taken. 
that biopsy was consistent with a cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, or CIN3. Remember, CIN3 is a tissue diagnosis from biopsy. She underwent a leap, as indicated by the CIN3, and you recommended that she had repeat PAP and HPV testing at 12 and 24 months for adequate follow-up. Now, let's go beyond the pearls. For patients with ASCUS, HPV-positive PAP, and the LCIL PAP, colposcopy detects high-grade dysplasia 15% of the time, whereas 50% have no visible lesion at all. Therefore, you can advise an LCIL patient that there's a 50% chance that she'll have a biopsy at the time of colposcopy and an 85% chance that her follow-up will be a repeat PAP in one year. So kind of good news, bad news. Failure to ensure adequate follow-up for abnormal PAPs and biopsy specimen opens patients up to unnecessary risk and gynecologic practices to medical legal pitfalls. So make sure you counsel each patient on what her next step will be and communicate that to her. How she should respect to hear about her results is really important. And she should hear about her results somehow if she's not contacted, clearly documenting the counseling in your note about how you were going to get in touch with her, where she could be found, and how you were going to communicate the results is really important. The ability of colposcopy to detect dysplasia depends more on the number of biopsies taken than on the experience of the colposcopist. So inexperienced colposcopists rejoice. Multiple biopsies increase the sensitivity if multiple areas are affected, so you're more likely to detect it if you take more biopsies. Document thoroughly how well a patient tolerates the colposcopy procedure in your notes, because that will help you plan how she might tolerate an office procedure for treatment of dysplasia, an excisional procedure, such as an ablation or a leap. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.